and now there is the thunder of the huge covered wagon coming home with sacks of grain. That honest wagoner is thinking of his dinner, getting sadly dry in the oven at this late hour. But he will not touch it till he has fed his horses, the strong, submissive, meek-eyed beasts, who, I fancy, are looking mild reproach at him from between their blinkers, that he should crack his whip at them in that awful manner, as if they needed that hint. See how they stretch their shoulders up the slope towards the bridge, with all the more energy because they are so near home. Look at their grand shaggy feet that seem to grasp the firm earth, at the patient strength of their necks bowed under the heavy collar, at the mighty muscles of their struggling haunches. I should like well to hear them neigh over their hardly earned feed of corn and see them with their moist necks freed from the harness, dipping their eager nostrils into the muddy pond. Now they're on the bridge, and down they go again at a swifter pace, and the arch of the covered wagon disappears at the turning behind the trees. Now I can turn my eyes towards the mill again and watch the unresting wheel sending out its diamond jets of water. That little girl is watching it too. She has been standing on just the same spot at the edge of the water ever since I paused on the bridge. And that queer white cur with the brown ear seems to be leaping and barking in ineffectual remonstrance with the wheel. Perhaps he is jealous because his playfellow in the beaver bonnet is so wrapped in its movement. It is time the little playfellow went in, I think, and there is a very bright fire to tempt her. The red light shines out under the deepening grey of the sky. It is time, too, for me to leave off resting my arms on the cold stone of this bridge. Ah, my arms are really benumbed. I have been pressing my elbows on the arms of my chair and dreaming that I was standing on the bridge in front of Dorcott Mill as it looked one February afternoon many years ago. Before I dozed off, I was going to tell you what Mr. and Mrs. Tulliver were talking about as they sat by the bright fire in the left-hand parlour on that very afternoon I have been dreaming of. Chapter 2 Mr. Tulliver of Dolcott Mill declares his resolution about Tom. What I want, you know, said Mr. Tulliver, what I want is to give Tom a good education, an education as he'll be a bread to him. That was what I was thinking when I gave notice for him to leave the academy at Lady Day. I mean to put him to a downright good school at Midsummer. The two years at the academy had done well enough if I'd meant to make a miller and farmer of him, for he's had a fine sight more schooling than I ever got. All the learning my father ever paid for was a bit of birch at one end and the alphabet at the other. But I should like Tom to be a bit of a scholard, so as he might be up to the tricks of these fellows as talk fine and write with a flourish. It'd be a help to me with these lawsuits and arbitrations and things. I wouldn't make a downright lawyer, the lad. I should be sorry for him to be a rascal, but a sort of engineer or a surveyor or an auctioneer and valier like Riley or one of them smartish businesses as are all profits and no outlay, only for a big watch chain and a high stool. They're pretty nigh all one, and they're not far off being even with a law, I believe. For Riley looks lawyer Wakeham in the face as hard as one cat looks another. He's none frightened at him. Mr Tulliver was speaking to his wife a blonde, comely woman in a fan-shaped cap. I'm afraid to think how long it is since fan-shaped caps were worn. They must be so near coming in again. At that time, when Mrs Tulliver was nearly forty, they were new at St Ogg's and considered sweet things. 
Well, Mr Tulliver, you know best. I've no objections. But hadn't I better kill a couple of fowl and have the aunts and uncles to dinner next week, so as you may hear what Sister Glegg and Sister Pullet have got to say about it? There's a couple of fowl wants killing. You may kill every fowl in the yard, if you like, Bessie, but I shall ask neither aunt nor uncle what I'm to do with me own lad, said Mr Tulliver defiantly. Dear heart, said Mrs Tulliver, shocked at this sanguinary rhetoric. How can you talk so, Mr Tulliver? But it's your way to speak disrespectful of my family, and Sister Glegg throws all the blame upon me, though I'm sure I'm as innocent as the babe unborn, for nobody's ever heard me say as it wasn't lucky for my children to have aunts and uncles as can live independent. However, if Tom's to go to a new school, I should like him to go where I can wash him and mend him. Else he might as well have calico as linen, for they'd be one as yellow as the other before they'd been washed half a dozen times. And then, when the box is going backwards and forwards, I could send the lad a cake or a pork pie or an apple, for he can do with an extra bit, bless him, whether they stint him at meals or no. My children can eat as much victuals as most, thank God. Well, well, we won't send him out of reach of the carrier's cart if other things fit in, said Mr Tulliver. But you mustn't put a spoke in the wheel about the washing if we can't get a school near enough.' 